common grounds. Really glad everybody made it here. People here in Minneapolis had to navigate the annual Twin City Marathon that I heard just got canceled because of the humidity, but doesn't mean the traffic wasn't bad. So one of the advantages for the Zoom community, not having to commute. Anyway, it's just nice to be here with everyone, all of you online, all of you in the room, on our hot and humid October day in Minnesota. And I'm finishing up a series of talks on renunciation. I think this is number six, the joy of renunciation. And it's really, as I've been saying these last number of weeks, um, really at the heart of all of the practices that the Buddha taught. Um, one aspect of that is the Eightfold Path. Some of you know this is the Buddha laying out the map of the spiritual life. And uh, at the wisdom piece of that, he talks about wise intention. And he offers, there are three wise intentions. The intention to let go, the intention to be kind, and the intention not to harm. These are the three wholesome intentions. So discontentment and greed, right? That's the opposite of the first intent, uh, intention, wholesome intention. And um, ill will, you know, when we're greedy, it's pretty easy to rationalize ill will because you have what I want or you, you want what I want and we're in competition. And that sets emotion. I mean, when you look at the conflicts in our own lives and then wider the conflicts in the world, how many of those conflicts are around greed, right? We think someone is making us unsafe, so we need to get rid of them, or whatever it might be. And then the, the, the third, you know, opposite of harming, uh, non-harming, is just how we can rationalize. So when we're acting on ill will, and we can rationalize, we can justify harming. And I know we're in this world where life eats life. I mean, it's a messy world. Nobody really imagines that we're not going to step on each other's toes in the world in little ways, in our partnerships, in our families, in bigger ways, when groups of people take advantage of other groups of people like has been happening right forever. But the intention to not harm, to, to, not to just easily get swept into those habits of harming, of hating, ill will, of taking, you know, the, the greed. And it's not about being good. <laughs> it's about being free. And this is really goes to the heart this is how we become independent. It isn't like you or me trying to live up to what we've been told is good. It's you and me learning to listen and feel what it feels like. So the opposite of letting go, the opposite of renunciation, greed, stinginess, right? how does that feel? Like whenever we're a little stingy, a little greedy, a little discontent, 
doesn't really matter if our kindergarten teacher told us to share. What matters is, well, what is our own experience of being greedy, discontent, stingy? How's that working for me? What does that set in motion in my life? Right? Because this is the thing we have to check out for ourselves. Like, because it's easy to imagine that if I'm going to be really good, it's, it comes with a cost. Like, yeah, I could be good, but then I'm going to be taken advantage of. Or I could be bad, and I could get what I really want. I, I know we don't always see it that way, but and I'm being a little bit provocative, but that's kind of the conditioned idea that people who are interested in being good in some ways are suckers, you know, and they're just going to be taken advantage of by people who are okay with being bad, just to sort of say it in a blunt way. But it'd be really good for each of us in our lives to check that out. Like when I really listen to my own heart and my own understanding, like what experience is teaching me about greed versus generosity, for example. Greed versus cultivating contentedness. When I really listen and start to live according to what life is teaching me, for my own well-being, is it also for the well-being of others? And what's for the well-being of others, also for my own well-being? Like, are we really, is there really this uh, split? Like, I can either live for my well-being, or I can live for the well-being of others. But I can't do both. Is that really true? And this really goes to the heart of understanding what the Buddha means by renunciation. Because like I've been saying these last six weeks, I want to thank Wynne Fricky who taught last Sunday, so I didn't teach, but the previous five weeks and then today will be the sixth talk on the subject. We have a lot of baggage around that term renunciation and sacrifice, you know, and we <clears throat> tend to imagine it as <clears throat> something, you know, like bitter medicine. Oh, I should be generous, I should renounce, I should be able to let go, I should be able to share what I have with others who are in need, but I really don't want to, you know. And maybe if no one's paying attention, then I don't have to. But then when I'm in this social context, well, I got to look good, so I'll, you know, go through the motions of being that kind of generous person. That itself is, you know, a lot of suffering. Like, having to be a generous person, like, living up to that brand, that's our brand. I'm a good person, I'm a generous person. I don't do things in excess, you know. Just to hold that up our whole life. To have to make sure our friends get it. You know, no, no, this is the kind of person I am. Do not look in my closet. <laughs> I want you to have, you know, this is my brand. You know, don't look in my garage and don't look in my closet. Don't look in the basement. And don't look at what I've been doing online, you know, my internet browsing history. <laughs> Just listen to what I tell you. I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> I'm a simple being. 
living a simple life and really content. <laughs> and the reason why this is such good practice is it helps us have a more honest uh, relationship with being an animal. I mean, you know, we are animals. And uh, that comes with some obvious conditioning. You know, we are the recipients of our evolutionary process. All of that arrives. And then we have, on top of that, related to that, the kind of cultural conditioning process, including what we pick up from our ancestors, or fa- our parents, whoever raised us. And then we end up like this, but as a spiritual being, I mean, just to use that phrase, if that's okay, by that I mean we have, we have the good fortune, it's really a privilege to be a spiritual being, because it means we have enough well-being, enough space, enough safety to be curious as opposed to desperate to survive, right? Desperate to manage difficult conditions. We have enough space in our lives to be interested, like, okay, I I have a more honest relationship to all the ways my heart, body, mind has been conditioned by evolutionary, the evolutionary process and, you know, genetics and also the cultural conditioning process. Oh, This is how it is, this personality, these impulses and tendencies. This is how it is. When I see this or experience that, then this is what arises in me. Jealousy or desire or fear, hatred, right? So we're just getting the lay of the land of being conditioned in the way that we're conditioned in a more honest way. And we can ask that question, how's that working for me? What does that feel like? And can I imagine another way? And then if we have the good fortune to bump into a wise person's teachings, like the Buddhist teachings, you know, that points out another strategy, another approach to being a sensitive animal, right? Human animal. Then we can check it out. We don't have to believe it, but we can check it out. Oh, what is this stuff around renunciation? My impulse, given my conditioning, is to be very suspect. You know, when someone tells me, puts the two words, joy and renunciation, in the same phrase, right? It's like, wait a minute. Because it sounds like something a kindergarten teacher would try to, like, pull over, you know. You should be good. You should share things. Take turns on the swing set. No, it's fun. It isn't fun when I'm not on the swing. Right? I mean, it just seems so obvious, like, they're just, they're trying to sell us something that doesn't make sense in my experience. But we haven't really checked it out. And that's what we're doing, is we're checking it out. Because every one of us in our own lives, we can live a very stingy, greedy life, given our particular situation. And we can check out, we should, like, how does that work for me? How does it, what does it lead to? Who do I become when I live in that stingy, greedy, hoarding kind of way? How does that feel? Is that who I want to be? 
does it lead to the release or the peace or happiness in any meaningful way? We get to check that out. And then in every little and bigger way that we don't do that, and we experiment, we check out letting go, non-attachment, contentedness with what we have. It's like, imagine before any purchase, we took two minutes, even 30 seconds would be pretty substantial, and we just practice, like, because it matters what we pay attention to. So we could pay attention to how much, uh, how interesting, how nice it would be to have what we imagine buying, purchasing. But we could also pay attention in that moment to the possibility of being content with what we have. Like how nice it is not to have to make that purchase. Like I could have a nicer home, but I could also, by choosing how to pay attention, practice being content with the home, with the clothes, with the food, with the body that I have. And it, it's not even like, we don't even need to have a preference, but it might be nice like before we choose to realize I can be content with this or I could be happy getting what, you know, I'm inclined to want. But there's this contentment and there's this possibility of getting what I want. And then just let things go where they go. Because a lot of times we don't do that other work, which is realizing I'm already capable of being content. Isn't that true now? I mean, I'm, the, the, what interrupts contentment is we put our attention on something better. Like I always joke about the conditioned desire in my mind to have the perfect retreat cabin, you know, somewhere on a big, big lake. Perfect in the sense of does it cost anything? Does it need repair? Does it have any bugs or rodents? You know, we just had, we have some uh, raccoons in our neighborhood where we live, and we just uh, had a new roof put on. We have a flat roof building where Comic-Con used to be back in the 90s and uh, early 200s or 2000s. Um, but anyway, so it has a rubber membrane roof that we just put on in, in 2021. And raccoons, we just realized as the water was pouring in yesterday or two days ago <laughs> into our house that just the last week they must have just had a little frenzy on the roof and decided to seek revenge on us and tore up our roof because, you know, the rubber membrane's not very thick. And uh, it's just sort of things like this. And then, you know, the, the instinct, my I mean, immediate instinct, is there any way to put a metal roof on a flat roof? You know, it's just like bigger, better, you know, so that I'll never have to deal with uncertainty or vulnerability. That's what I want. But that world, hopefully you realize, doesn't exist. There isn't a world where there isn't vulnerability. But we can imagine it. If I just had a better cell phone that the battery lasted a little longer, or if I just had, you know, indestructible clothes that never need to be ironed, or if I just had, you know, and then we just keep a really good massage 
therapist, you know, who could release all my knots and I could afford them at least every week, you know. Or, and so we, we can, with our imagination, we can always imagine a more perfect world with less vulnerability, less uncertainty, less pain. And then, then our mind, because we don't really distinguish between reality and imagination, our mind clings to that imagining as if it's a reality. But it was just something the mind thought up. Perfect cabin on Lake Superior. You know, which just doesn't, it, given conditions, it just doesn't exist as a possibility for any number of reasons, let alone the commute. <laughs> but, you know, the mind lies. So when it imagines, like what I was saying, it really matters what we pay attention to. We don't pay attention to the work that it takes or the problems that come with it or the cost or the commute. We pay attention to the parts that mind the mind likes. And that, you know, just whatever it is for your mind's obsession. Oh, yeah. And then we create like, well, this moment isn't okay because I don't have that. So then we have discontentment. So we need to balance that with actively cultivating contentment with what we have. Just breaking the spell. Because we have this, it's delusion really in a Buddhist sense. We have this delusion that this is not okay, this moment. I mean, isn't that true right now? Just check for yourselves that we have a, like, like a, a lawyer, we have a lot of compelling evidence in neat files why this moment, like who I am right now and what I have right now, isn't good enough. And that I don't mean just even personally, like the world I live in, the politics, what we're doing about climate change, I mean, whatever it is, no, this is not it. This is not the kind of world that I'm willing to be content with. <laughs> but see, we're not, it's not about our idea of the world, it's about just this moment right now. How to be relating to this moment, because this moment, this world right now, this is already how it is. It's like, there's no choice. This is the moment that's arising for each of us. The way your body feels right now, that's already the way your body feels right now. You don't, there is no other option. Your clothes against your skin, whatever that feels like for you, or the air temperature in the room, or the quality of your attitude or mood right now, or the digestion you have in your belly and your digestive organs, that's just how it is. So, the question of contentedness or discontentedness is only relevant in terms of moment by moment. Nobody's making the argument that this world is perfect, right? Have you ever met anybody making the argument that, oh, we don't need to do anything to make our world a better place? No. There's all kinds of things we can do to deal with the injustices and the inequities and the meanness and all of the causes for suffering internally and externally. But the question of contentment or discontentment is really right here and now, moment by moment. We can be content even as we're totally engaged in making the world a better place. 
But that work, that engagement comes from love, not from discontentment. Love, on all the different expressions of love, spiritual love, it's a fierce, powerful energy. You know, it gets things done, certainly more than hate does. We always think that, oh, I I need to be angry in order to be motivated. (laughs) That seems like the ultimate deal with the devil, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, if I don't really hate something, I'm not going to get up out of bed. You know, or, you know, fear in a Buddhist sense is uh, just part of that category of aversion that includes hate. So it's like, and it's true, we do sometimes when we're lying in bed and don't want to get up. We scare ourselves in order to motivate ourselves. Like, if I don't get up, I'll be the person who slept in. <laughs> you know, oh, that's not who I want to be. Or I'll be the person who gets fired because I won't be at work on time or whatever it might be. Imagine a different way of getting out of bed in the morning. Like, contentment. Contentment with this life, contentment with this morning, moment, this morning. Contentment with what it feels like when we sit up you know, now that I'm in well into my 60s, I'm just noticing, like, is it supposed to hurt that much when you get up in the morning? <laughs> it's like just the stiffness. It's like, oh my God. I thought they were kidding. <laughs> it does hurt. But we can be, oh yeah, that's how it is. It's like all those years, I used to be a pretty serious runner in my teens and 20s. And... Uh, I said, oh, that came with a, with a cost. You know, just like how it feels in the body now. I'm guessing maybe that's related. Who knows? I want to share this uh, really powerful teaching. This is from Maha Pajapati. I've shared this before. Some of you are familiar with it. She's depicted in the wooden statue over here. I think you can see it both online here in person. And she was the, uh, you know, the Buddha's, as the stories go at least, the Buddha's mother died in childbirth. And so uh, his aunt raised him, and uh, the sister of his mother. And she was also then, a few years after the Buddha's awakening, deep insight, he traveled through the place where he was raised. And several of his uh, relatives and other folks in that clan in northern India uh, decided to be monks and some of the women wanted to be nuns and Maha Pajapati became the first Buddhist nun. And uh, so it was sort of a central female figure at the time of the Buddha. And one time she came to the Buddha and asked for some teachings and I, I love, you know, maybe because she was the person who raised the Buddha she could be slightly demanding you know, she didn't want a long talk, so she asked if the Buddha would, um, it would be good, sir, if you would teach me in brief, such that having heard from you, I might dwell alone, secluded, heedful, ardent, and resolute. Like, just give me the very essence so I can remember it, and I could just go off on my own, and I'll have the awakening that you had. And so she did. And here's what the Buddha said. Gotami, that's the family name of the Buddha and of this person, Gotami. Gotami, the qualities that you may know, these qualities lead to passion, not to dispassion, to being fettered, not to being unfettered, to accumulating, not to shedding, to self-aggrandizement, 
not to modesty, to discontent, not to contentment, to entanglement, not to seclusion, to laziness, not to aroused persistence, to being burdensome, not to being unburdensome, you may categorically hold, this is not the teaching, this is not the training, this is not the teacher's instruction. And then he goes through, it says, but, you know, the opposites. So instead of um, uh, passion, it's dispassion, being unfettered, shedding, uh, modesty, contentment, not entanglement, uh, persistence, right? Being unburdensome. You may categorically hold, this is the teaching, this is the monastic training, these are the teacher's instructions. That is what the Buddha said, gratified, Mahapajapati Gotami delighted in his words. Yeah, so let's just take a moment and look at each of those things. We have about 10 minutes left. It might be nice to take a deeper dive in each of those. You know, they're obviously very related, those qualities that the Buddha points out. And don't feel like you have to remember all of them. And I have a little cheat sheet with what I just read and a little bit more of my notes on each of these things that I'm going to share with you now. So for people in the room, you can find the Google document by going to our public calendar online and look for this Sunday morning sitting group, uh, weekly practice group it's called, and just look for that link there. And then those of you online now, you could just find it. It's in the chat, um, all the resources for this whole six-week series of talks is in that document. So the first one is, it leads to dispassion, not passion. And, you know, we, in the West, we can have a misunderstanding of this word passion because it's sort of seen in a positive sense. But, you know, the literal translation, I think, from Greek or wherever the origin of the word is, is suffering. Passion is suffering, like the passion of Christ as a good Catholic. You know, we heard being raised during Lent, you know, we'd have on Fridays the passion of Christ. And we, those of you who don't know the kind of Catholic rituals, we'd, have the um, this little ritual on Fridays where we would go through the stations of the cross, the time of the of Jesus's uh, difficult time before he died, he was crucified, and uh, but they call that whole thing the Passion of Christ. But we we have this idea that passion is sort of equated with having energy or being enthusiastic, and there is a kind of intensity when we're attached, a kind of juicy intensity. And we it's really up to us to unpack our personal experience of intensity. When are when are our intense experiences, you know, there's a lot of juice, a lot of energy, but when are they suffering and the cause for more suffering? And when are though, when do we have experiences that have a lot of energy, but the heart isn't at all burdened by the energy? That's a very, like if you stay for small groups or if you want to have this conversation with a Dharma friend or a good friend at home in the next week or so, this would be a really good thing to unpack with a friend or just in your own reflection. When have I had experiences of feeling really alive, but no attachment. The heart was in, is in any kind of a grip, 
a squeeze, or burdened or weightful? Right? It's an interesting question. Because a lot, like even what we might consider beautiful moments in our lives, like they might make even our top ten list of the, the best moments of my life. Now, from the context of our practice, especially those of you who've been practicing for a while and really have a sense, oh, by the way, this sunshine, this tells us we're around the uh, equinoxes every year. So we have a skylight. If those of you who aren't uh, here in Minneapolis, we have a skylight that it's like a sundial. And for a few weeks, close to the solstice, the teacher at this time gets a little sunshine in their eyes. So anyway, um, you know, where in our life do we feel that so alive with energy that there isn't any attachment to the energy? We feel joy, but there's no clinging to the joy. We feel uh, like everything matters. Like we want to be all in. We don't want to be on the back seat or disconnected. We really want to meet the moment. We really want to embrace sensitivity, but we're not burdened by the sensitivity, like what we're feeling. We want to feel what it feels like, the whole range, not just wholesome or pleasant emotions. If we're feeling envy, we want to feel that. If we're feeling sad, we want to feel that. But we don't want to be burdened by what we're feeling. Because that's a nice, like, not being fully enlightened, it's sort of nice to be able to effectively, appropriately imagine what that might be like. Well, I think this is a good way. Because it's not about somebody who transcended feeling. It's somebody who feels but isn't confused by feeling. Because otherwise you're not really human if you're not feeling. Whatever you are, you know, you're not really human. Because feeling, you know, just like... A, being sensitive is so much of what we mean by being alive, right? It's kind of like, boy, I really wish I weren't here. I could really be here if only I weren't here. You know, it's like, I could really be a sensitive, responsive human being if only I didn't, if I weren't sensitive and didn't have to feel what I'm feeling. And when we look at our behaviors, a lot of it is about cutting ourselves off from feeling. You know, even staying busy, it seems like we're maybe okay with feeling, but sometimes what drives our busyness is not wanting to feel what we're feeling. So we dig in over here, we do this over there, because we don't want to be quiet for a moment because we're going to feel what we're feeling. We don't want to just sit there and feel what we're feeling, so we stay kind of hyped up. That's why I know it sounds a little trivial, but I really recommend for those of you who are privileged enough to take a rest in the middle of the day, just to lie down somewhere. I call it, because it sounds a little bit more acceptable, I call it a deep relaxation. <laughs> I don't call it a nap. But in any case, I think it's really important, and especially at the beginning moments of it where you're lying, and I use the corpse pose usually, um, some of you know sabasana. It's uh, often used in yoga, toward the end of a yoga session. But anyway, the point is to set aside a quiet time. It could be 15 minutes or so, give or take, 
where we have no responsibility except to feel what we're feeling. And we're in a relatively comfortable posture, so, and we just want to feel all the layers of what's already there. We're not looking for any particular feeling. We're just willing to be sensitive and in a sense vulnerable. And so we're letting go, right? We're renouncing distractedness from whatever we're feeling. And if it leads to a nap, fine. But the first minutes of that will be a kind of, like I even, just to be provocative again, I even like using the word dying, like a willingness. We're dying, we're letting die any impulse to control or fix or get somewhere or become somebody. We're just being sensitive, radically sensitive to what is here to feel, feeling what's here to feel. And that non, that not being in conflict, not struggling with the way it is, with the feeling that's here to feel, is deeply peaceful. It's like, because we're realizing, we're kind of practicing in a simplistic way, we're practicing being fully free, right? Like an awakened one. Because here we are, being fully human, feeling what we're feeling, and we're practicing not running, not denying, and not managing the feelings. Like just being vulnerable to what we're feeling for 15, 20 minutes. That's what we do a lot when we're sitting. It's just that we might simplify it by creating a little training ground, just being with the breath, being with the body, or being with sound, right? Just to create more uh, simplicity and possibility for success. And then as our practice develops, we can open up more and more. So nothing is excluded from what the heart is sensitive to. It's like, it makes a lot of sense. It actually can be quite inspiring for people getting into the Buddhist teachings is to realize that there's that kind of integrity that the means is very much related to the ends, the end of spiritual life, right? So if you want peace, we practice being peaceful with conditions. If you really want to be peaceful and at ease, no matter what happens, like even dying or loss or success could be even more scary sometimes, right? If you really want to be at ease with any conditions, what makes so much sense that our basic daily practice would be practicing being at ease with conditions. But there's no ease with conditions without being profoundly sensitive. We have to be awake, we have to be present with the conditions in order to practice being free with them. I mean, it's, I always joke, I know it sounds a little, it can seem a little off almost, but, you know, there are so many terrible crises in different places, sometimes here in Minneapolis too, of course. But it's easy for, like, if something terrible is happening in, in, the, in Ukraine, it's easy to say, well, that's that. And, uh, you know, I support the United States supporting those people, but, you know, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. Because it's way over there. 
So it's the same thing with like, uh, oh yeah, I can be with the pain in my heart or the pain in my body as long as I don't have to feel it. But as long as I don't have to be connected. If I don't have to just let it move, then I can be okay. But when we're really uh, embracing sensitivity and intimacy and interest, like really like interested, well, what's moving around me, what's moving in me, it's not so easy to be content and at ease and trusting. And remember that being at ease, content and trusting has nothing to do with what we do in response to what we're feeling. It just means while we're feeling it, there's this understanding that it feels like this now. It's already feeling like this. So my response doesn't arise out of discontentment or a hatred toward what I'm feeling. It arises from an understanding that, yeah, I'm willing to feel what it feels like to be human right now because it's already feeling like this. And then this will help inform how I respond, what I do next. Not saying, no, 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 I'm not going to feel this. And you know how it is. It's like I see this a lot. I think it's true generally. We see this a lot in terms of our really important relationships. And I don't have kids, but I do have a uh, my partner, Wynn, who taught last week. We've been together for, I think, 33 years now, living together. Knew each other before that, of course, but... Um, but I, I'll, I'll notice, like, in our, my conversations with Wynn, like, uh, that times when I'm on the surface, I might look like I'm being helpful, but I'm really discontent with their suffering, with Wynn's suffering. Like, I don't want them to suffer. So, I'm not really, I'm not coming from this place of, oh yeah, sometimes it's like this with my partner. Same with my own suffering, or any friend's suffering, right? Because we all suffer. And sometimes when I'm not feeling good about my life or about some situation, my action, it may look like self-compassion, like I'm taking care of myself, but I'm really, in that more subtle way, I'm practicing discontentment and hatred, not hatred towards me, but hatred towards the pain I'm feeling. But that's still hatred. And hatred is a cause for suffering. Hatred is not a cause for healing. And I can be content. Oh yeah, sometimes it feels like this for me. Sometimes I am really sad, or sometimes I do feel lost, or sometimes it does feel like this. Let me feel this, and let me respond as best I can. Let me take care of myself as best I can. Not from hatred, but from this willingness to feel what I'm feeling as best I can, imperfectly, but as best I can. So again, in the small groups, if you decide to stay, or maybe you'll find uh, another place to reflect on this question, or you have a friend at home that you can find a time to have this conversation with. But hey, generally, your own experience with this willingness to let go, we're renouncing anything in the way of intimacy. That's what we're learning not to trust. Anything in the way. And even if I can't actually be intimate because the feeling that I'm feeling is too intense, I'll go find something I can be intimate with. Well, maybe I'll take a walk because I can be really present with that. But I can't be with this emotion right now because I feel like I'm going to explode. Okay. 
I'll do something a little grosser, like take a walk or take a bath, something that I can really pay attention to, be right there with it. Knowing that this emotion is still there, but now it's more in the background because I'm really bringing my attention to the walk or the taking the bath or the making soup or whatever it might be. And then just sharing that correlation like, when have I experienced times of that radical letting go? So there's just sensitivity, sensing the way it is. And then out of that sensitivity comes responsivity, somebody doing something, whatever that is. But but the investment, the... um, the real sense of what's trustworthy is like trusting sensitivity, being present, and letting go of everything else. So it's like, okay, so we get this afternoon to practice with. And little, you know, 10 seconds here, 30 seconds there. So don't expect continuity all the way through the afternoon, but like just see if you can value being present and see if what you do, what you say, what you don't say, comes out of being radically present. Because we think I've got to figure out what to say or what to do. But you might just find that you do. Doing happens. <laughs> like a famous Buddhist saying, Buddha Gosa, this is uh, <clears throat> 3rd century CE, so about uh, 900 years after the time of the Buddha. He had this great line, suffering is... No sufferer is found. Doing is, no doer is found. Right? So we're not saying about not doing, but just about putting the emphasis on the sensitivity, on being present, not on a doer trying to do it right, but just the way to do our life right is that radical letting go of what's ever in the way of being present. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.